Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michelle Meyer joins us this morning. Michelle, a 9.5% GDP statistic. I want you to frame right now the Bank of America guesstimate of the path from a boom economy to a normal economy. How does that process look? Sure. And I think that's actually the big question. It's trying, people are trying to figure out what the moderation and growth will look like because we know that 9, 10% growth, which is what we're tracking in Q2, is not sustainable. So there will be a slowdown, and the data is already indicating that. Um, but it's slowing, you know, in a, in a fairly um, manageable way, all things considered. So when you look ahead to the next few quarters, we very much believe the economy will be still growing well above trend, trend being close to 2%. So you'll see somewhere in the order of 5 maybe 6% GDP growth on average of the next few quarters. It's half the pace that we had in the second quarter, but we can't imagine the economy will continue to grow at that type of pace, given right. the capacity in the economy. Dovetail Bank of America sell-side research, your securities research into what you and Ethan are doing in economics. What is the corporate response to the economy you imagine? Well, I mean, businesses are investing. Businesses are seeing consumers go out and spend. They have cash on hand, and they were actively spending on all things good um, up until recently where there's been some slowing, and now they're really embracing the services side of the economy. But without a doubt, the consumers out there participating in the economy. And when you see that as a company, you want to go out and invest and meet that demand. Um, and that's very much still what we're seeing in the data flow. That seems to be what Morgan Stanley's Chetanaya was saying also over the weekend when he says that he expects a red-hot CapEx cycle to sustain global GDP growth above pre-COVID levels. Why is that not necessarily the case as sort of portrayed by the bond market? Or in other words, yeah. how inconsistent is the bond market with some of these projections? Look, I mean, I know the last few weeks has been all this debate around fundamental and technical factors driving the bond market. But I think beyond that, you know, there seems to be this storyline or sentiment in the market that, yeah, we can have really strong growth for the next few quarters. Fine. That's still part of the payback from this incredibly artificial time in the economy around COVID and the, and the ensuing stimulus. But what's the underlying trend? What's the structural trend? Has that changed? Are we going to return to this environment of slow underlying growth? Are we going to return to an environment where demographics are still quite negative and depressing, where there's still disinflationary psychology? And I think that that's starting to kind of spook the market. You can see in the longer end of the curve. And that's what the Fed's Tom Barkin was talking about in a Wall Street Journal article that came out this morning. He really pointed to the employment to population ratio, this sort of participation rate, as still being too low to justify tapering. How much, however, can the Fed overwhelm some of these actual economic inputs with their stimulus? In other words, do we even have to look at the fundamentals or are the fundamentals entirely the amount of liquidity pumped yeah. in by the Federal Reserve? Yeah, so, I mean, that is the balance, right, is that the Fed is, you know, a, a heavy hand in the markets and what the Fed is doing today in terms of buying and what they are communicating for the future in terms of forward guidance is huge, right? So, and it's not just the Fed, it's 
all of the central banks that are creating these types of challenges for getting a clear signal of what's happening in the bond market. Um, but going back to your comments around what um, Barkin said, I think that is super important when you consider where the underlying growth rate is in the economy. It's the supply side. How much capacity is there for the economy to continue to grow? And for that, we rely on labor force participation, people going out and working, and we rely on productivity. Um, and those two factors, I think, are super important to keep an eye on when you're thinking about the long-run um, potential for the economy. Michelle, looking at your latest research on Chairman Powell's testimony, you say the following. We look for him to sound relatively more dovish than he did during the June presser. Why is that, yeah. Michelle? You know, in the press conference, remember, he's talking on behalf of the committee. And we know from the SEP that there are seven FOMC officials that are looking for a hike next year. So there are a lot of voices out there that were growing kind of anxious about what they're seeing on the inflation front and wanting to get started with the normalization of policy. But we don't think Powell is in that camp of a 2020 hike. And in the testimony to Congress, we think we'll get a little bit more of a sense of that. And we also think in the testimony, he's really going to reinforce how the Fed thinks about maximum employment, which, remember, is for broad-based um, labor market recovery, one where um, the inequalities that we had seen over the last several decades could be resolved to some extent. That is still really core to, I think, what Chair Powell is trying to accomplish with this new framework. Well, Michelle, let's get into that. I read the monetary policy report that came out on Friday, which will serve as the basis yeah. for this testimony later this week. Here's the line that jumped out to a lot of people. The post-pandemic labor market and the characteristics, characteristics of maximum employment may well be different from those of early yeah. 2020. What do you think they're getting at there? I think the idea that they have, you know, changed the definition of maximum employment. It's not just getting the U3 unemployment rate down to call it four to four and a half percent. It's about getting an environment where that unemployment rate is down across the economy, um, where the employment to population ratio for prime working individuals is back up as well across the economy. Now, it's not going to be perfect, right? And there's going to be a lot of challenges. And at some point, you're going to really get this tension between the tightness in parts of the labor market versus right. the wage inflation or underlying price pressures. Now, I know, ja I know at Jackson Hole, you've pushed Ethan aside. You're going to be out there, Michelle, probably under the white <laughs> tent in the lawn chairs for the Saturday speech. Are you telling me we have a central bank committing social policy now with monetary tools? Look, it's not social policy, and the Fed will be very clear that they're not trying to, you know, uh, move one part of the economy versus the other, right? That's fiscal policy. But what the Fed is saying is in order to have a complete recovery, and one that we think will be able to you know, continue because you have broad-based wage growth, because you have the ability to see broad-based price pressures in the economy, it needs to be a complete recovery. And that was the lesson that I think they learned, one of many, in the last cycle that came out of the Fed Listens events, is that if you don't have the economy, you know, increasing across the spectrum, it may end up not lasting, or you end up damaging your long-run potential even more. I look at this, Michelle. I got it. You know, Michelle, I'm just sort of dazzled by all the theory that's getting out. Can we go back to core values, core knowledge? How's, some, how's the housing market, Michelle? I mean, this is how you became famous. Yeah. Do you believe in this housing <laughs> rally or the suburb? Let's take outside New York. If I was by chance yeah. north in Westchester, and if by chance I loaded the boat right now on 1.75 million, am I going to enjoy that at 1.3 million when this natural disaster is over? Just by chance. 
just just by chance. Um, right, yeah. So for anybody who's moving to Westchester, um, no. So I think um, yeah, I, I think there's been a lot of movement. Clearly, there's been a lot of churn in the housing market. We've seen that in terms of the volumes, um, and part of that is because after the pandemic, people thought differently about where they want to live. That was very clear in the surveys. Part of it was because people had cash to spend if they weren't going out traveling, etc. So they went and bought goods. Housing is one of them. So there was definitely a distortion in the timing of the housing market, and we're still picking up the pieces from that because you can see that the supply side was not at all ready to accommodate this big increase in demand. Quite the contrary, builders kind of froze when the pandemic hit naturally. So inventory was very low and demand just greatly exceeded expectations and that created this big price increase. It's not sustainable. We will see, and we are already seeing demand cooling from the highs at the end of last year. Um, we are seeing now construction start to pick up, inventory levels start to pick up. That's going to take some of the pressure off of home price appreciation. Are we going to see housing crash? No. Are we going to see a, a further slowdown? Yeah, I think so. And that makes sense. Home price appreciation should come off of these crazy high levels that just don't add up with what you're seeing in the broader economy. Michelle, lovely to catch up. Michelle Ma there of Bank of America looking ahead to a key week with inflation data tomorrow. And of course, Chairman Powell's testimony a little bit later in the week. Right now, we start strong with a gentleman looking not only at making the relative move in the market, but the absolute move as well. Skybridge Capital has been steeped in moving money to hedge funds, trying to get big return. This year, that's sport. Troy Gajewski joins us uh, right now, whether Italy uh, or England. What is it for hedge funds right now, given the confusion that we see out there? Is it an up year or a down year? Yeah, so far it's been a reasonable year. I think the most important point that we make to our clients is just like broader markets, it's a first shall be last and a last shall be first What's that year. Mean? What that means is, is that ma managers that outperformed last year, mainly because they were long growth and secular growth stories, have underperformed because you had about a four-month underperformance period there. And managers more focused on cyclical strategies like structured credit or distressed credit have outperformed as economic strength has been very pronounced. So, you know, more broadly going forward, mm -hmm. the market or the industry is still overweight secular growth, but a lot of these value plays still, we think, have legs. Do you think the conviction around cyclical growth stories, Troy, how fragile do you think that is if it exists at all? Given what we've seen over the last week, all it takes to move in a bond market and it just completely upsets any confidence people have about where they are in the equity market. Yeah, well, again, sector rotation this year has been more critical than it has in the past. So first five months, you had significant underperformance of growth versus value in cyclicals. And so no surprise, obviously, cyclically focused managers, of which there are very few left, by the way, because of the years of underperformance, um, they, they had very strong starts. Last month, however, you started to see secular growth reassert itself. And so you do have a very fragile dynamic between those factor rotations, and that continues to keep hedge funds up at night. Do they have the right balance? Are they two over their skis in one factor or the other? Troy, let's talk about active management. Why do I need active management when the S&P just seems to be doing all the hard work for me? Yeah, I'll tell you, the Fed keeps pumping in liquidity. We have 16% plus annualized growth rates. Obviously, we, you guys have been discussing where bond yields are. 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, active management, it's why do you have it? Part of it is the non-correlation. So you have either stocks or you have bonds. Obviously, bonds look even more so now like return-free risk. Obviously, when yields got up to 1.6, 1.7, you had some upside, but we're at extremely low uh, real uh, return rates now. Um, so if hedge funds or active managers can outperform fixed income and high yield and provide some correlation benefit to equities, that's still the value proposition. It should be easier to outperform bonds going forward. And equities at 22 times uh, 2022 earnings, you know, how much more multiple expansions left there? Troy, one of the active decisions has been to go into Bitcoin, and I know that you have been uh, pretty pretty big proponent of that. And we've seen the Bitcoin's price basically have uh, since the peak that we saw over in April. What did you do during this period of time? Yeah, so for us, basically what we did is we trimmed the position in order to keep it from growing further um, in our portfolios at the end of the March as we had more outflows than inflows. Um, and since then, we've rotated a small amount of the capital into Ethereum. We view the market pretty straightforward as, you know, Bitcoin will be the market leader in terms of store value and Ethereum, at least so far, is the uh, market leader in terms of transaction, transaction use. So we want a little bit of diversification there. All in all, we have a 9% position size. And when we look right now at the on-chain, chain data, what it's basically telling you is a lot of the strong holders are reasserting themselves and accumulating from those that got into the market late last year. And that is setting itself up for some type of supply shock, very similar to what we had last October, November. Um, so it's going to be a volatile asset, but it continues to be very non-correlated. And we think the risk reward is now skewed again to the upside. So Troy, perhaps there will be future gains, but when it comes to justifying active management to clients, how do you discuss your investment in Bitcoin when it is volatile? and sort of argue that this is a reason to go into the fund, even though it is an unproven asset class that does have all of the ups and downs that can be rather unpredictable. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, part of active management, again, is trying to identify nascent asset classes that have asymmetric risk return. And, and again, we're in the non-correlation business. We're trying to generate returns that are differentiated from equities and fixed income. So, so that's what drew us to Bitcoin initially. And then, of course, if you look at the broader macro environment of incredible money supply growth, still <coughs> record low you know, 10-year yields, for instance, the adoption cycle that continues, mm -hmm. we think that small part of our portfolio can provide non-correlation and asymmetric upside. And then, of course, over time, we have to manage that relative to other positions as we evolve. Tell me about earnings season in the long-short structure right now. Tech has resurged here. Yes. Are hedge funds exposed to Apple and Amazon? Are they an afterthought from another time and place? No. So, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past. Facebook and Google are, are more heavily owned. More visible. Yeah, more visible. Yeah. So those are those of the of the fangs or, or the large cap mega. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, are the most heavily owned. And, you know, the view there is that a lot of the antitrust action wouldn't come to pass that, you know, if you look at 20, 30, 40 percent cash flow growth, as well as earnings growth over time, you get a very reasonable yeah. multiple. Um, you know, Amazon's probably the third in the list. There hasn't been really heavy mm. ownership of Apple. Um, and, you know, I keep mm. pointing out the fact, if you look at a guy like Seth Klarman, who's one of the greatest value investors that I think any of us have ever seen, you know, two of his largest 10 equity names are Facebook and Google, which says a lot, right? In that it's very rare that you can have mega cap tech stocks right. be viewed as value, right. which is sort of a reverse of the whole mindset of the market. You're an MIT engineer. Were you dazzled by our calculus earlier on the Carmen line? 
understand the difference between Branson and Bezos? I'll tell you, Did we Tom, do okay? honestly, I haven't focused on that in so long. It was like it was like a breath of fresh air. It was for a the breath past. of fresh air. It, it really I was. Yeah, remember trying to memorize the equations? Oh, man. S equals V. Dazzled was in the woods. So, so I'll tell you guys a funny story. My, my first engineering class I ever took at MIT was actually fluid mechanics. Yeah. And, and it Love it. It really blew my mind. You went from, you know, math, calculus to real engineering. And yeah. it was like, oh my goodness, this is really, really hard. Yeah. So that that was the uh, Did you have wake se- up call. Was your textbook Sears and Zemanski? Uh, it, it was not. I don't remember exactly yeah. who the authors were, but uh, John, it, uh, we had tears. It was just tears. Yeah, it was like, it, you're it, kidding it, me. It, I won't even tell you what I got on my first <laughs> test score because you'll never have me back on air again. <laughs> so but let me let me just tell you, it wasn't an A. But I did finish with an A in the class. So, <laughs> hey Troy, it's been way too long. Troy Gaiaski, it, it has Sky been. Bridge. Good to have you back in the studio yeah. too. Great doing handshakes, Troy. What are we doing? Elbow bumps. Yeah. Hey, we got, yeah, what's, what's right, I got to look over here. Yeah. No, it's it's really great to be back here, and and thanks for having me on as always. I'm going to pop over to you in a commercial break. Good Troy Gaisky, yeah, Capital. Vincent Reinhardt joins us. He is Mellon Investment Management Chief Economist and Macro Strategist, but far more is encyclopedic on the research paths, plural, that we have taken over the many decades leading the research effort at the Fed a number of years ago. Professor Reinhardt, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Vincent Reinhardt, when you look at the Lagarde-Powell nexus. How are they attached right now? Uh, They share a a love of ambiguity and of of talking a lot. Uh, They'll take every platform they can. And right now, uh, they're both in the position of wanting to reassure markets that they they know what they're doing, they have a new framework, and they're putting that framework in place. Uh, For President Lagarde, it's only a week old, and that's why you see her, uh, and and pretty much all the ECB leadership have been been out in force uh, over the weekend through this morning. Vince, the, the framework that they're putting in place will be tested by data. Does the framework collapse when the data moves against these central banks? Uh, It it will be a test of whether they're willing to follow through with uh, what they've said they have. Uh, The features, the similarities uh, between the Fed and the ECB are twofold. Number one is they interpret their 2% inflation goal as symmetric. That's news for the ECB. And second, it's outcome-based, not outlook-based, i.e. wait till we actually see it happen before responding. Key difference, ECB hasn't gone Fed-like in saying the goal is an average inflation, uh, unspecified average two. And the one thing where they're most similar is they're unspecific. Uh, Central bankers like to pitch a really big tent because that's how they can get their governing committees uh, together the FOMC and the Governing Council. And so they use ambiguous words. They, you know, they'll tolerate an overshoot, but how long an overshoot? How big an overshoot? We don't know. Well, within the language is unambiguous concern about housing prices, the idea that we've seen a huge boom in that in both sides of the Atlantic. We've seen this from the Federal Reserve as well as from the ECB's Christine Lagarde. What do you expect? What measures do you expect from central bankers to try to tame housing prices? Or will they just say this is a necessary consequence to a policy that otherwise helps the economy? 
Well, here's an irony. The ECB wants to add uh, owner's equivalent rent into their price index because it makes it go up, up higher. So they're actually welcoming that little extra uh, kick to inflation to get closer to their goal. What can they do? Um, there's monetary policy and regulatory policy in the same building. Expect to see them to uh, tighten up where they can in terms of supervisory restraint. Uh, if it's a, it's a problem, it's a problem they would prefer to address in, from that side of the building. Uh, right now, um, their overwhelming concern is a macro one, the level of employment, uh, and therefore they're not going to adjust the setting of rates nor their balance sheet uh, to worry about housing. Fed's got an opportunity yeah. when it does start off the taper, though, because it could slow purchases of mortgage-backed securities by by a quicker pace than it could do treasury securities. That'd be a way to send the signal. And that's something that I know a number of Fed officials have actually discussed, and people are wondering whether that will be where they start. I want to dig into one thing that you said, which is they are know that they're pretty far away from their employment targets. And Tom asked the question earlier, is the Federal Reserve trying to set social policy in some ways with its targets, given the fact that it has such a multifaceted kind of definition of full employment? So I think that the reality is we're putting new, new labels on old bottles. Uh, that's true both at the ECB and, and in Federal Reserve. ECB is going to adjust its pol uh, direct its policy toward climate change. Exactly tell me how you do that. Um, I think in this environment, Chair Powell has actually been at the forefront of explaining what the central bank has always done in a way to, to reach more people. And the way you reach more people is you talk about their economic circumstance. You don't focus on, on aggregates. Economists can, be, can, can, can get apart from the real world by focusing on concepts and numbers rather than people's plight. And Chair Powell's done a good job of reorienting the focus, but it doesn't change what they're doing. Vince, this is brilliant, and, and, and they're going to be tested. If we look at John Taylor at Stanford, if we look at Paul Krugman at, at, at CUNY, wherever he's got a shingle out today, the Venn diagram of Taylor and Krugman does have a lot of overlap, but that overlap isn't an overt social policy. How do we have a social bank given the heritage from McChesney Martin in 1951? So I think you're right there, Tom, and it is a fundamental problem in the design of organizations. The Fed is incredibly opaque, right? If you give it a lot of goals, it doesn't have many tools to hit all those goals. And so how will you be able to govern the trade-offs unelected officials are, are making? Um, do you really want uh, the interest rate to be somewhat different uh, because Jay Powell feels it's better for climate change this month, uh, or rather, if when you give them more narrow focus, you can uh, monitor them better on how well they're actually doing their jobs. Ms. Reinhardt, what does Chairman Powell not want to say this week? The, to me, it's just so much what not to say. He, he doesn't want to make news. He doesn't want to make your, your next show interesting. Uh, because if he makes news, then he said something different. Uh, he said something that was surprising. 
Uh, he wants to say everything's on course, that they are worried about the, uh, the pandemic, of course. They're, sat they're pleased with unfolding economic data, but there's a long way to go. Yeah. And, and he's got to, he, but he's also got to reassure you they got the tools in the toolkit, they'll do whatever it takes. Uh, so he's got to walk a fine line. Vince, one thing that he keeps harping on, a number of other Fed officials as well, including Tom Barkin of Richmond, have talked about the participation rate and how low it has remained despite the economic recovery that we have. How do you expect the Fed to explain that, the frictions that seem to be taking a longer than expected time to resolve? Yeah, they, they issued this thing, semi-annual monetary report what Friday night, and it did a good job of, of talking about those problems in labor market matching. And Chair Powell talked about it at the press conference, too. Basically, we did the easy stuff uh, last year where people who had positions went back to work when, when market activity resumed. Now we're in the much harder process of labor market clearing where people have to find new positions, new jobs. The unemployed people now are jobless. Uh, some of the unemployed people last year had jobs. The businesses were just temporarily closed. And so now the matching takes time, and people frustrated by the match leave the labor force. People who retire don't come back. People go to you know, um, uh, black market activities, too. Uh, and and people get frustrated, and it and that's why it takes a while for this part of the labor market, to, uh, 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 this this part of labor market clearing, and that's why the Federal Reserve is going to keep policy accommodated for a long time, i.e., at least through 2023. Hey Vince, good to catch you up to get that perspective, that framework for Thank thinking you. about things right now. Vince Reinhardt, there, the Mellon Investment Management Chief Economist and Macro Strategist. Right now with an update, Joshua Sharpstein, Johns Hopkins, and Professor Sharpstein, I just really wanted to go to what came up not once, not twice, but three times this weekend. Fauci says there's a schism in America. It's a division, a split, a rift, a breach, a rupture, a break, a separation. What do you do on the Delta variant, variant if you're in a part of America that's 70% vaccinated? Well, there are parts of America that are 40% vaccinated or 35% vaccinated. And those are the parts which are now seeing not only an increase in cases, but an increase in hospitalizations due to the Delta variant. So, you yeah. know, it's like, uh, here we go again in those places. And, you know, it's really important to be vaccinated there. But more generally, it reflects um, a big problem that, that we're having, okay. uh, have, you know, having people we, ready for the I, vaccine. I get that, but what do we do in the parts of the country that are 60, 70, or even more percent vaccinated? Do we just go on with our lives, or do we have to amend our lives because another part of America is down at 38 percent? Well, as long as there are places that are at 38 percent, the places that are at you know, 70 or 80 are going to be at risk. Now, the people who are vaccinated right now are pretty uh, protected. But what about people who have conditions that, you know, the vaccine doesn't work so well for them? They're immunocompromised, for example, or children or, um, you know, some particularly uh, older adults. Dr. There are Shepstein. risks to people, even if they're vaccinated in some cases. I apologize to interrupt, but this is a really crucial point that I really haven't heard before. The vaccine does not work for certain individuals. How many people are we talking about? 
Well, they're probably, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a, maybe a, a little bit more than a million, something like that, who have, you know, such uh, significant medical conditions that they're just not going to react to the vaccine. It, it may even be more as you consider people on immunosuppressive drugs. We don't know exactly how much risk they're at, but it looks like they're not responding to the vaccine as well. And some people may not be responding at all. So they have to worry that they're going to come in contact with somebody who is infectious. Now, if you're in an area without you know, very many cases, that risk is low. But as long as the virus is really spreading in parts of the country, you know, that risk is going to be there. Dr. Sharfstein, I think the confusion also stems from the uncertainty around what the threshold is to return to normal life. I know the United Kingdom is struggling with this as well. Does it become, as John has talked about, a public health issue when we have individuals who are, might suffer, but as a whole, the healthcare system is not going to be torpedoed by a flood of cases? Well, uh, I think it it matters that you know the healthcare system is going to be stable. I think that does allow for um, you know a lot of things to return to normal, um, but it still makes it unfortunate for people who have to take extra protections if they're doing that because you know other people um, haven't decided to be vaccinated. It's even worse for the people who haven't decided to be vaccinated because they're at risk for getting very sick or dying. How close are we to an under twelve vaccine? Um, you know, I think you have to wait for the, the studies to be done. Right now, the companies are looking for the right dose um, to make sure that, you know, they have a dose that is both able to create um, the protection, but without, you know, uh, side effects. Um, and so until we know, until we see the data, it, it's hard to say. Those studies are going on, and I think we'll have probably the early readouts in the next couple months. Doctor, I still haven't got a clear read on this. Why are we vaccinating children? Well, we're vaccinating right now. We're vaccinating adolescents because they can get COVID. Many of them have. Um, they can get severe cases of COVID. They can pass it on to people uh, in their peer group and, and who are older. So, you know, the COVID is uh, as bad or worse, um, you know, depending on the prevalence compared to a, a bad flu season. And we vaccinate kids against flu. You know, um, it's a horrible disease when kids get it severely and they can have long COVID just like adults can. But as you point out, we don't shut things down for the flu, do we? But we are with this. And if we are at a stage, which you just alluded to, sir, and clarify if you want to, where we can treat mm -hmm. this as flu, why aren't we treating it as flu? Well, I think going into the fall, we're basically going to be. We're going to want kids to be vaccinated and they should be back in school. That's what we do for flu. Dr. Sharfstein, where have we gone wrong when we look at the political divide that we see Republicans who are more inclined not to get vaccinated and Democrats more inclined to get vaccinated? Where have we gone wrong when it comes to messaging on a public health level, just based on the science? Well, that's a great question because you wouldn't imagine a political divide in cancer treatment or a political divide in how to treat your ear infection. But suddenly we have what appears to be a political divide in whether to get a safe and effective vaccine for a horrible and lethal illness. Um, you know, I think that uh, the roots of that are um, probably, uh, you know, complicated. But uh, I, th I think it's a very bad development that the right wing media have sort of adopted this as a political call to arms that like if you believe in 
you know, that you uh, don't like the Biden administration, then you shouldn't get vaccinated. And that message is just a terrible thing for public health. It's really irresponsible. People should be able to make a decision to protect themselves based on the science and the facts. Doctor, thank you. Got to leave it there. Dr. Joshua Shafstein there of Johns Hopkins University. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.